not only does children love this story because it is a story that uh, taps into our imaginations, but globally, people love the story. Uh, people who are not Jewish, people who are not a Christian, they don't have a Judeo-Christian background, they can relate to the story. And part of the reason why they can relate to the story is because this is, is really a story about being an underdog and about how the underdog overcomes a gigantic obstacle and wins. And this story is kind of ingrained in American culture and American society. Our, our sports are kind of centered around it. March Madness, we're always looking for the big upset, the, the David-type team that's going to beat the Goliath-type team. And we love it, don't we? Unless, of course, our team is the Goliath team. <laughs> And we're on the losing end. But think about our movies. A lot of our movies carry this theme of the underdog. How about the movie Rudy? Anybody ever seen the movie Rudy? Or Remember the Titans? Or what about Rocky? Adrian! All right, we love some Rocky. Or one of my favorites is a movie called Sunset Park. It's a story about an inner city basketball team that ends up winning the city championship and defies all odds. These stories, they capture our imagination. They, they capture our heart, just like the story of David and Goliath. But a lot of times when we hear this story, uh, we walk away momentarily feeling inspired. And perhaps we think that this story is all about inspiration. We walk away and we read about how David defeated Goliath and we say to ourselves, I'm going to be like David. I'm going to defeat my Goliath. And sure, there's a lot of principles here for the Christian life about being victorious over the Goliaths in our heart and in our life. But I, I think that that, that that mere inspiration wears off and we need something deeper. And, and honestly, I think the main point of the passage is deeper than be inspired and be like David. So we're going to see that as this sermon progresses, what the, the Holy Spirit, I think, is, is really getting to in this text and in our hearts as we rightly divide the word of truth. But what I want us to see today is that David is able to defeat Goliath because David has a perspective that we need, a perspective that we are called to live with. David has a lens, a way in which he views the world that allows him to live courageously in the face of an opportunity to be anxious. And we need that perspective. We need a God-filled imagination. We need a God-centered worldview that allows us to face our various day-to-day -day challenges with faith instead of fear. We need a perspective that's going to help us when the car breaks down and money is funny. That's going to help us to navigate through relational hardships. That's going to help us to stand when that professor mocks us because of what we believe. That's going to help us to, to move on in the midst of grief because we lost a family member or friend. That's going to cause us to look to Christ in the midst of turmoil at our church or turmoil in our community. David had a God-sized and God-filled imagination and God-centered perspective that I think is a gift to us and that we only will see and receive through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we lead up to chapter 17, we see in chapter 16, 
this narrative. And the narrative is that Saul is pretty much on his demise. The kingdom is slipping from his hands because of his flagrant and habitual dis, uh, disobedience towards the Lord. He is disobeying the Lord because his heart is not God's heart. It's not captured by the Lord. But David, God has anointed him, and David is slowly on the rise. He is slowly on that path to become king. But up until this point, everything that David has done has been in the background. When he was anointed by Samuel, it was in the background. When he played music for Saul, as Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit, it was in the background. But now we see that David is going to begin to come to the forefront under the power and the plan of God. The first thing we see in this text is an intense scene. We see that the Philistines have lined up across a valley on a hill in Judah. And on the other side is Israel. And they are lined up getting ready to go to blows, to go to war against one another. This is an intense scene. This is probably a field, the hearts of everyone who is in Judah, everyone across Israel with, with great anxiety. Imagine North Korea lining up on the western coast and their leaders pointing their nuclear heads right at the western coast saying, within days, we are going to fire on you. Just like our hearts will be filled with angst and anxiety, so were the Israelites. And the Bible says that this takes place for 40 days, 40 long days, 40. It's an important number in the Bible. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights with, with Noah. Moses was raised in 40, uh, 40 years in Pharaoh's household. The children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan for 40 long days. 40 is the number of testing. And here we see that Israel is about to face a huge, huge test with Goliath. And up on the scene in verse 4, we see an intimidating champion, a, a man by the name of Goliath. He is a very intimidating man. The, the author here gives great detail to his height, to the way he's dressed, to the words that he has to say. The author wants us to know that this man was downright frightening to behold. You know, growing up in the 90s and being an NBA basketball fan, I'll never forget when the Washington Bullets had on their team the tallest man in the league along with the shortest man in the league, Manuke Bowl and Muggsy Bowles. Manute was about seven feet tall, seven inches, and Muggsy was all but five feet, three inches. And it was a sight to behold seeing them run up and down the court together. For some reason, when I think about David and Goliath, this picture comes to mind, but I'm sure Goliath had a, a little more meat on him than Manute did. <laughs> but also, I'll never forget a, a picture that I saw of Michael Jordan with Muggsy Bogues. And Michael was just kind of holding the ball over Muggsy's head in a game, just playing with him. <laughs> Growing up in Chicago, that always stuck out to me. In people's mind, when we talk about David and Goliath and we see this height differential, we, we kind of think to ourselves like David had about 
the same shot as Muggsy did at beating Michael Jordan in a one-on-one, right? <laughs> but no matter how tall Goliath is, no matter how, uh, how big he is in this text, we see that his height will be no match for God. But not only do we see an emphasis on Goliath's height, we see an emphasis on his armor. The author is talking about how it's made with bronze and 5,000 shackles, and he has his javelin that, that slung on his back. He has a spear shaft and a weaver's rod. It's giving all these details, building to suspense, saying this brother has the latest and the best technology. But not only this, he's, he's very arrogant. He's very sure of himself. In verse 8, it says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So Goliath is a trash talker. And he is standing in the valley talking trash to God's people, defying the armies of God. And he's calling them to something that we call representative warfare. He's basically saying, you give me your best guy and I will stand and fight for my people and whoever wins... Whoever wins, get the reward. And this was a, a, a way of warfare in which cities and, and countries would sometimes resolve things. We send your best, you send your best, and let the best man win. But I love what verse 12 says. In verse 12, we see an unexpected contender. We see David. It says, now David was the son of an Ephronite named Jesse. And the text is going to go into just the, the, the details and the, the context here. In verse 13, we see that uh, the text is going to remind us that Jesse had three sons, and these three sons, three of the seven sons followed Saul into war, three of his oldest sons. And you maybe remember last week's Sunday uh, sermon where Pastor uh, Justin talked about how Samuel had each of the sons line up one by one, and how impressive they looked on the outside, but how God looked at each of them, passed them over, and said, that's not the chosen one. This is not the one. This is not the one. Well, these three have gone into battle, and it's almost as if the, the narrator is, is building suspense once again, saying, you know, Saul is standing back, terrified and dismayed, and so are the three older brothers of David who should be courageous and who should be stepping forward. I mean, no one is stepping forward. Everyone is afraid. Everyone is terrified. What's funny to me is, is that Saul seems like he would have been the, the natural person to step up. Not only is he the king of, of Israel, but the Bible says that tall Saul himself was a tall man. And not only was Saul a tall man, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. 
According to Judges chapter 20, verse 16, the Benjamites were skilled fighters. It says that they were skilled with the slingshot. They could shoot a, a sling and a, a stone and, and hit a, a piece of hair hanging off a man's head. And you would think that Saul would be the courageous one that's stepping forward for his people saying, I will fight for them. I would die for them. But no. Instead, we see an unexpected contender named David. Now, David, at this point in the story, is, is taking care of his sheep. And one day, his father calls him out of the field and says, son, I need you to go. And I need you to take some bread and some cheese to your brother and to the commanders because they're on the front lines of the battle. And so essentially, David becomes a pizza delivery guy. And he puts on his Domino's hat and he runs to the battlefield to deliver some pizza. But while he's delivering the pizza, the Bible says that Goliath steps forward and begins to talk some trash. And he begins to talk not only about Israel and the men and how cowardice they were, but he begins to defy their God. And the Bible says that David, in hearing this, while he's dropping off the pizza and a Diet Coke, begins to ask some questions. And he begins to ask around, who, who is this guy that is talking all this trash? And why has no one stepped up? In David's mind, he just can't understand that David is thinking, wait a minute, we, we serve Jehovah. We we serve Yahweh. We serve the one who spoke the world into existence and created all this in six days and on the seventh day rested. We serve the one who, who was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Wait, wait, wait. We serve the one who delivered us out of Egypt with 10 miraculous plagues. Wait, wait, wait. We serve the one who delivered us and who allowed us to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. David's like, what's wrong? with y'all. Why y'all letting this sucker punk you like this? And then he began to ask some, some questions. He said, now, hold on now, now. To the person who defeats Goliath, what's the reward? And then David learned that they would live a tax-exempt life. Hey, I might have went to war at that point. Like you, for the rest of my life, I don't got to pay taxes? Well, shoot, I ain't got a whole lot to lose, right? Not only do they get a tax-exempt life, but they get great wealth. And then they get to marry Saul's daughter. Well, David says, sign me, coach, sign me up, coach. I'm ready to play. <laughs> but here's the thing. David puts himself forward, begins to ask these questions. And we see that David's oldest brother begins to get angry with him. In verse 28, he says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And David said in verse 29, now what have I done? <laughs> in other words, big bro, why are you tripping? But here's the thing. Oftentimes, when Goliaths come in our life, when trials and tribulations come in our life, they do not come one trial at a time. Often when trials come, it comes in multiples. Satan throws a left and then a right, 
And if that don't catch you, he'll get you with the uppercut. A lot of times when we read this text, the only enemy and the only barrier we see is Goliath. But David had more barriers to make it through. David had some familiar barriers. His family thought he was crazy. And not only that, we see that his big brother claims to know his heart. He calls him stuck up. He calls him wicked. Now, that's an interesting note to make, because while he claims to know the heart of his little brother, we know just a chapter before that God has said that David is a man after his own heart. Let me just do a little footnote real quick. Don't allow Satan to discourage you with what other people think about you. And don't be the person who think you always know why somebody's doing something. The human heart is complex. Sometimes we don't know why we're doing something. But to judge someone's heart as if you created them, as if you made them, as if you're sovereign and can hear their thoughts, that person probably not even thinking about you, going about their own life, doing what they do. I know why they did that. They trying to be petty. I could be petty right back. Walking past me at work and not speaking, how conceited. You don't know what's on that person's mind. You don't know what that person was met with when they woke up in the morning. You don't know how Satan is afflicting them and, and challenging them. But not only did David have to work through these familial problems, David also had a, another tempter. And that was actually his king, Saul. We read in verse 33 that Saul hears about David's desire to, to go into war, and Saul tries to discourage him from going. And he does so by doing two things. The first thing Saul does is he tells David that he's too young to fight. Too young to fight. But look at the resilience of David. I love how he responds to Saul. He says, listen, Saul, if God can deliver me out in the pasture from wild mammals. God can deliver me in the valley from a big-headed giant. He says, listen, God has delivered me from the mouths of lions and bears, and he can deliver me from the hands of an uncircumcised Philistine. Uncircumcised. Why is David talking about this man's private area? David is talking about it because David is pointing out that this fellow is not a covenant member of God, that he is outside the covenant community of God and that God has favored his people. Yes. David convinces Saul to give him a shot. And this next scene is, is quite interesting. Saul says, young man, you can go out to fight him because I'm sure not going. But since you're going out to fight him, how about you put on my armor? And the Bible says that Saul dresses David into his armor, and we read these words. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head, and David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go on these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag 
and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. I love this picture. Saul says, okay, if you're going to go fight, he's thinking pragmatically, then the least you can do is wear armor like Goliath. So he dresses him in his armor, king's armor. So, you know, the king's armor is some good armor, right? It's probably padded a little extra. It's probably made with a a, a little extra umph. It's shining a little bit. And David goes to battle like a child going out to a snowstorm with a snowsuit, just stiff. You see David in Saul's office walking around. Saul's like, David's like, how's it look? He's like, you look good, man. You look good. And David gets the sword and he tries to swing it and he knocks over stuff. And then he tries to sling and he's missing. And finally, David said, listen, Saul, I'm not you. I can't go in this. And he puts on his sandal, puts on his tunic. He gets his, his merce. That's a man purse. He gets his stones and he walks. He begins to run towards Goliath. And that's why Goliath laughs at him. Like, man, you got a merce on. You coming at me? I'm just joking, fellas. Rock the merce. Just rock, rock it with confidence, all right? So David runs to Goliath, the text says. We read in verse 48. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the head. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell down on the ground. Wow. David is a shepherd. David is skilled with his sling, probably practicing for hours and days and days just to protect his flock. And God uses David in his weakness and his puniness, and even with his lack of, of warfare training to defeat this enemy named Goliath. And this last scene is absolutely fantastic. David stands before Saul small, with a sling and the head of his Goliath, with Goliath's head in his hands. And he simply says to him, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. What a beautiful picture. What do we do with this text? Well, I believe the God, as I said before, God has called us to live with a God-filled imagination. God has called us all to be able to look at the Goliaths in our life. And rather than look at them in fear and anxiety to remember who we are in God, to have a God-centered perspective and to move on by faith. In order to do that, there's three things we need to root ourselves in. The first is we need to root ourselves in God's glory. We need to see that God's glory is most important. David is concerned about the honor and fame of God. That's what motivates him to to risk his life. David is fed up with this, this Philistine, with this man defying God, trash talking so that everyone could hear. And he says, you know what? I'd rather be dead than allow my God 
to be spoken about like this. And I believe that the same God of Abraham is my God. I believe the same God of Isaac is my God. I believe the same God of Jacob is my God. I believe the same God of Samson is my God. I believe the same God of Deborah is my God. And I am at least going to attempt to stand up for him. And he steps out with a God-filled imagination. And many times we are so afraid of what Satan might do that we forget what God can do. We are so afraid of what might happen that we lose perspective on what God is able to make happen. David is more concerned about his God's glory than his own reputation, than his own safety. This is a big difference in comparison to Saul. Saul was more concerned about his reputation. Saul wins uh, uh, the war against the Amalekites, and what's the first thing he does? He builds a monument to himself. There's a lot of talk about self-improvement. There's a lot of self-help books. Self-improvement or, and, 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 and helping yourself to grow, that's a good thing. You want to invest in yourself. David had confidence. He had confidence because he trained. He had confidence because he took his job serious. But ultimately, his confidence did not rest in himself. His confidence rested in his God. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord the fame of the Lord, the intrinsic worth, the the intrinsic beauty of God. That is what we're called to make public to a world that is dying and lost without hope. So our question today is, are we going to live our lives like David with a God-centeredness or are we going to live our lives like Saul with a self-centeredness? Are we going to choose to see our challenges and trials as an invitation for God to to work through and glorify himself? Or are we going to cramp and, and crumble every time something goes wrong in our life? Are we going to face the giants that are before us knowing that God is for us and working through us? Or are we going to face it constantly doubting whether or not God loves us? That's the second thing that we need to root ourselves in this text is this belief that God fights for us, but he also is able to work through us. David had that confidence. There's no way you face a a giant like Goliath without believing that God is for you. And sometimes it's hard to, to face our various challenges in life because we, we have so much working against us. For some of us, we have a narrative working against us. A narrative in the way that we were raised, in the way that we were born. And we're constantly fighting off that narrative, fighting off our thoughts. Perhaps we had parents that were neglectful and, and Satan is constantly telling us that we are our parents that we're not smart enough, that you're not good enough, that that no one loves you. Just like David, he has his brother telling him these things. You, you, David, are a wicked and evil person. Saul, you're too young to fight Goliath. 
David had to fight through those same insecurities, those same struggles, but he was convinced that God loved him. And how much more, Christian, can you be convinced of the love of God? We have a reminder that is so powerful, that is so deep, that is so beautiful. We, we know that God loves us because he allowed his son to die in our place on Golgotha's hill. On Golgotha's hill, Jesus beat the ultimate Goliath for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. So when Satan tells you, you're not good enough, you can say, in Christ, I am. When Satan says, you're not equipped enough, you can put on your spiritual sandals and your tunic and grab your purse and say, in Christ, I'm good enough. When Satan say you're not equipped enough, you can say, you know what? I'm not the writer of my own story, but I know that God goes before me in Christ. I am equipped enough. And you go out by faith and you take whatever is in your hand and you use it for the glory of God, knowing that God is for you. And he'll work through you. I'm talking about supernatural assistance. I'm talking about supernatural power. Jesus said, it's better for me to go and to be with the Father. For I am sending a a paraclete, a a helper, a, a comforter. He said, it's better that I go so that you can be filled with me. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in power. Lift up your head and know who you are in Christ. The head and not the tail. The apple of his eye. The beloved, the one he sings over every morning. Your sin does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your weaknesses does not define you. Your insecurities does not define you. What defines you is what Christ says about you and what he's done for you. Nothing shall separate you from it. story is told of a Christian woman who was living amongst non-Christians and who, as a result, was facing death. She was pregnant, expecting a child. And they said, it's the day after your child is born, we are going to kill you because of what you believe. So she's in labor, having this child, and naturally having labor pains, and she's hurting. And the guardsmen heard her in pain and and thought that this would be a a great opportunity to, to taunt her. And he began to taunt her. And he says, ma'am, if you are screaming like this in such a ordinary trial, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow when we torture you and kill you? And she said, God, you're right. This is an ordinary trial, but tomorrow's trial is supernatural. And I expect to have supernatural assistance. God is a God of supernatural assistance. That's what David says in Psalm 18, verse 29. He says, with your help, I can advance against a troop 
with my God, I can scale a wall. Where's your hope when things aren't going well? Is your hope in your tactics? Is your hope in your methods? Is your hope in your ability to to budget well? Is your hope in your education? Is your hope in your strength? Or is your hope in a supernatural God? It's good to prepare. David was prepared. But ultimately, our hope rests in the Lord. Finally, we see in this text that God has given us victory through the true and better David. David was good, but there is one who is one who is better. A true and a better David. And so we started this text talking about the, the temptation to only find inspiration in this text, to only find a message that says, go and be like David. I believe that there is a greater message in this text, and it's not one of inspiration, but it's one of imputation. It's it's not one that says, go and be like David, but it's one who says, look to the one who has represented you and fought for you, and his name is Jesus. See, David was Jesse's son, and David was sent by Jesse to fulfill a task. Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus was sent by God to fulfill a task. See, David lined up and and he ended up fighting Goliath on behalf of Israel. Jesus lined up and he came to earth and he fought on our behalf. David's victory secured Judah. Jesus' victory secured a place in heaven for you. It's interesting what Goliath said. Goliath said, who's going to come down and fight me? And I can hear Satan in the halls of time saying, who's going to come down and defeat me? But there was one who over 2,000 years ago answered, I will come down and I will fight you. And his name is Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus fought Satan but it looked like Jesus was losing and he died and he was put in a borrowed tomb. But the Bible says on the third day, he rose with all power in his hand. And I'm so glad that Jesus is the true and better David. Now here's something else that's interesting. In verse five of the text, it says that Goliath was dressed like a serpent. Look at the text, verse five. It says it. I'm not making this up. It says it, look. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor. Goliath came to battle dressed like a serpent. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) Jesus is better than David. Jesus is the true David. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God gives a promise. God gives a promise that one day from the the womb of a woman... (laughs) From the seed of a woman, there will come a child. There will come a man, and he will crush the serpent's head. Jesus defeated the ultimate serpent, Satan, and he reigns victorious over him. And in your life, you've got to remember that you are fighting from victory, not for victory. 
The battle has already won. Jesus has already defeated that slithering serpent named Satan. Victory is already yours. You just have to wait it out. You know, they say when a serpent's head is cut off, that the the body still moves around for a little bit after his head is chopped off. And you may be looking at your life saying, it don't look like I'm winning. It seems like Satan is having its way. And I just tell you, just wait. One day you will see that Jesus has already won the victory. Praise be to God. And every Sunday we gather together, we take a meal that reminds us of Jesus' faithfulness and that Jesus courageously uh, went to battle for us to defeat Goliath. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He says, this bread is my body broken for you. He took a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Christian, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take this meal called communion and we take a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And this reminds us every week of God's faithfulness towards us and God's love for us so that like David, we can look to Christ and courageously move forward and fight any Goliath that may come in our life. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to ask you not to partake in communion. Rather, I'm going to ask you to to take Christ, to take Christ, to see that you could never fight Goliath on your own, that your works are not good enough, that you are not strong enough, that the only way to be reconciled to God the Father is through his son, Jesus Christ, who represented you over 2,000 years ago. Without the representation of Jesus, your best works before God is filthy. They're not good enough. Only the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus can satisfy the Father. Today, I implore you, I beg you to take Christ by faith. You don't have to have all the answers. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, and that he is God and he's coming back one day. Place your faith in him. Become a learner. Become a disciple. See your sin. Repent and turn and trust in Christ. Pray with me.